My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website at hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. Today is a monumental day because we are finishing 2 Corinthians, all right? So this is going to be the end of 2 Corinthians, and it's crazy because I looked at the calendar, and when we started 1 Corinthians, all right? So we've gone through consecutively 1 and 2 Corinthians. We started 1 Corinthians July 25th of 2021. So almost to the day, a year later, um, we are finishing up this entire thing. And of course, there were, you know, Advent thrown in the middle and New Year's and all that kind of stuff. But, um, and then some random stuff thrown in there. But uh, we are finishing one year, almost a year exactly later. Uh, So it's kind of a big day, right? A kind of a big day for us. Uh, I sure have grown to love these Corinthians, even though I've never met them in my whole entire life, but they've almost become family and friends. And it's like, oh, like, I don't know if you guys have ever like finished like binge watching something and like when it's over and there's no more left and you're just like, what do I do with my life? Right. Um, that's kind of how I feel with the end of second Corinthians. It's like, I wish there was more, but there's not, we don't get to know anything else about what happened with the church really. But I'm looking forward to, uh, moving on to what we have next before we jump into the next letter. We're actually going to take about six weeks or so and go through something completely different. So, uh, be ready for that next week. It's going to be a surprise. Uh, that's what people say when they don't really know hundred percent what it's going to be. So, um, surprise next week. Uh, I'm, I'm tossing a few things back and forth. I haven't landed yet, so I'm looking forward to it, though. Um, all right, so let's dig in and let's ask ourselves uh, with this last chapter, how can this chapter apply to us and be beneficial to us and what is being said here, all right? I'll have uh, some scripture on the screen for you guys, as always, and uh, but let's just dig right into this thing. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to be looking through the ESV, uh, and if you guys want to pull up a different translation, go right ahead so you can get a better idea of what's being said, but let's see what Paul's final words uh, to the Corinthian church say, all right? Let's check out verse 1 and 2 real quick. We'll put it up here on the screen for you guys. Here's what he says. He says, this is the third time that I am coming to you, all right? Uh, And then he says, every charge, and what he's talking about is, is remember who he's talking to. He's talking to these people uh, who are still in the Corinthian church that have not turned back to God yet, all right? So he says, every charge, like of ungodliness that, that anyone brings against you, all right? Any charge against you must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's like, I'm going to come to you, but every single charge, it's got to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is an Old Testament principle of accountability. And you've actually may have seen this um, in scripture before, but even in Deuteronomy, uh, it talks about um, how you are supposed to deal with someone when somebody brings a charge against someone else. And, uh, and it's to protect someone really against wrongful 
prosecution, all right, against someone that might have been mistaken about something, um, somebody that, you know, because of a misunderstanding of something, or maybe it protects, you know, against somebody who has a vendetta against someone else or a score to settle, or because they flat out just don't like you. It would not be a very fun world to live in uh, if someone could say anything about you and then everyone just assumes that's what is true. So it's to be, it's to be a thing that is to protect them, uh, but also it's to protect the person um, who is the accuser as well. But it's a reminder to us that a fair and balanced justice system is of great importance. It's actually interesting because this whole idea of, of two or three witnesses is mentioned several times in scripture, enough to make me go, huh, like there's really something to that. Like God went to great lengths to show us and remind us uh, that this system is something that we should follow uh, of two to three witnesses. It's a reminder to us um, that, it, that, fair and, that fair and balanced is something that we need to have. But it's also a practical reminder for us in everyday life to remember and see if you guys agree with this, to remember that there are two sides to every story right? There are two sides to every story. And if you've ever been slandered or if you've ever been spoken ill of, it's tough when everybody sides with one person who has kind of now tarnished your reputation based on a misunderstanding uh, or because maybe you had a bad day. Have you ever slipped up because you had a bad day and you really hope that doesn't end up defining who you are? Yeah. Um, or even like just an outright lie. You don't want others to define you based on what just one person says. You don't want that to happen. How many of you guys read reviews before you go and do anything? Do you guys do that? Like before you pick a restaurant, before you pick like really anything, like Airbnb, whatever, you go and you read reviews. Now, how many of you guys just read one review and you're like, wow, it's good enough? Right? No, never. Like you never just read one review. You read as many as possible. Why? To get an idea of what is true and what isn't true. Right? I've seen one person give a five-star review of a steakhouse because their rolls were awesome. All right? But I've also seen a person give that same steakhouse a one-star review because they didn't serve fettuccine Alfredo. Right. Yeah. So what have I learned about the steakhouse? A, their rolls are awesome and B, they're not an Italian restaurant. All right. So, but, so you can't just like, you've got to keep going in search because you can't just trust one person's review, right? I need more reviews. And in the same way, we can't allow our opinion of someone to be determined based on one person's testimony. We, we shouldn't do that, right? It's not fair to that person. We need to hear all sides and the more witnesses, the better, right? So it, it keeps everything balanced and it keeps everything fair. And always remember this, all right? It takes a while to build up a reputation, but it only takes one second to tear it down. So let's give people the benefit of the doubt, all right? And I'm not saying like that every single time, but I somebody taught me one time a long time ago, go ahead and just assume from the very get-go that everybody's a 10, all right? Assume the very best about everybody. And then if they, tarnish it themselves, then that's fine. But don't just believe the first thing that somebody says about somebody else. Um, and, and remember, you don't want them to do that about you either, right? So I love this. It's, it's something that you can just read past really, really quick, but it's something that's in scripture a lot, this whole two or three witness thing. And it's practical for our justice system, but it's also practical uh, for our very lives as well, right? So Paul says, I'm going to come, but I'm going to come with fairness, I'm going to show up with fairness, all right? And so this is what he says, continuing on in that scripture. He says, I warned those 
who sinned before and all the others. And I warned them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. This is, this is harsh word. Like these are harsh words that Paul is using here. He's like, I'm not going to spare anyone. When Paul visits Corinth for the third time, he plans to deal with those who have yet to turn from this incredibly dangerous hybrid of Christianity and worldliness. Those two things cannot exist in a person. Like you cannot have Christianity and worldliness existing in a person and it not be incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous, it's a dangerous life, not only to the individual who's living that, but it's also a danger to the church who is allowing that to happen inside the church, all right? And it's why Corinth actually got the way that it did and why Paul had to even write to them in the first place. So remember this, tolerated sin in the church, all right? I'm not saying like, like you can't have people who, you know, sin and mess up, right? Like that, that doesn't exist within a church. If, you're, if you in this church like are, are perfect, um, great, great job, but you're now telling us you're not perfect because there's nobody that's perfect, all right? And it's just a lie. Like it's, it's not true. Like nobody in this whole entire world is perfect, but there's a difference between being perfect and tolerating sin. Like sin is something that we can't tolerate in the church, like for somebody to continuously live in, in, in that hybrid of Christianity and worldliness, uh, because what's going to happen is it will end up destroying a church from the inside out. And that's, that's something that we can't allow to happen. And we saw that played out when we went through 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and so, you know, Paul says that he has given them enough time. He's like, I've shown you enough grace. Um, and at this point, if anyone still chooses to live in rebellion to God in their sin, then, then he'll have no other choice but to come and take action. And he actually says that they will not be spared. And he doesn't actually say what action that he's going to take there, but we can assume, uh, I, I think my best guess is based on 1 Corinthians, based on 2 Corinthians, he's probably talking about dismissing them from the church. And I know that I know a lot of times we go, wait a minute, like you mean you're telling me that if someone is living in sin, that is like they're unrepentant of that sin, that they should be kicked out of the church. Man, according to the Bible, if they are going to continue to do that, the, the Bible says, and actually they say, it says the most loving thing that you can do for that person and the church is to dismiss them from church. And look, if that, if that doesn't settle right with you, like if you're like, are you, like you're telling me that the most loving thing that we can do for someone who refuses to, um, to, to like repent from any sin that refuses, that just, that just wants to continue living in this way, you're telling me the most loving thing that you can do for that person is to dismiss them from the church. And I'm telling you, yeah. And if you want further, like, I, I don't have time to go into all of that right now because we spent an entire Sunday going through that whenever we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, uh, and if you want to go back and you want to listen to that, I understand where that mindset comes from. And I understand that that mindset actually might come from a very, I, I believe with my heart that it comes from a very loving place where that's unsettling for you to have to dismiss anyone from the church. Like that should be unsettling because we don't want that to happen. But if you want to hear why it's the most loving thing to do, then you can go back um, and, uh, and check out the podcast and, uh, and check out 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll even give you the date. It was preached September 12th of 2021. And so if you want to go back and listen to that entire message, you can go back and listen to that entire thing. But obviously we don't have time to get through it all today. Um, but he goes on in chapter, uh, in chapter 
13 verses 3 and 4. And this is what he says, and we'll again throw this up on the screen for you guys, but he says this, continuing on, he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And you might read that and you might go, what? Like, I do not understand at all what he is saying here. Let me just tell you kind of what he's saying here. Basically, he's playing off of this dichotomy of strength and weakness. All right, strength and weakness. What appears to be weakness, he's saying, is actually strength. And let me break it down for you guys. So what we need to do is we need to be careful that we don't confuse humility with weakness. All right? Don't confuse humility with weakness because here's what they were doing. They were confusing the humility of Jesus and Paul with weakness. They were saying, oh, Jesus, that, that was a weak moment of him being on the cross. Paul, you're a weak person as well because you allow people to, um, to, to just get your teachings for free. You should be charging for your, like, the, he, he wasn't a good speaker. He also wasn't a very good looking guy is what he says himself. And so they attributed these things to weakness. And whenever he came to them, he wasn't really bold in the way that he spoke. And so they saw, they thought that he was weak, but, but really it was humility. And they were confusing humility with weakness. But on the same hand, also do not mistake, he's saying the big talk of the false apostles that we've been talking about and their self-attributing like big status with strength either. We've got to be careful that what, whenever we're looking at people, we don't define strength by status or anything like that. Like we, we, we've got to be very careful about how we, how we do those things because think about this for just a minute. Jesus appeared weak on the cross. If you look at it first glance, like Jesus appeared weak on the cross, right? He was bloody. He was beaten. He was naked. And, and the cross is a very shameful way to die back then. It was a humiliating way to die. And so Jesus was shamed, but he was also humiliated on the cross. But think about this for a second. Behind the scenes, though, was perhaps the greatest strength that this world has ever seen or will ever see. Because did Jesus have the ability to take himself off of the cross? Yeah. Did he have the ability to call down a legion of angels to every person that was mocking him or ridiculing him while he was hanging there and take care of them and then also to have them take care of him? Yeah, he could have done that. So think about the strength that it took actually for Jesus to willfully stay on the cross. Knowing that he could have gotten off. It actually, like when you look at first glance, you're like, wow, what a, what a weak moment in a person's life. But it wasn't. It was actually one of the greatest examples of strength that has ever that this world has ever seen, and uh, and so, you know, um, through Paul, uh, you know, it could seem like weakness um, as well, uh, but it wasn't weakness on Paul's account either. He was given, you know, by God all of this authority, this authority of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that power, that proof that Jesus is speaking in him would soon be seen by all of them who, were, who would fail to submit to the authority of God, um, that, that the authority that God gave him, all right? So for the church in Corinth, to disobey Paul was to disobey the God who had given Paul his authority. And he's like, don't mistake my humility for weakness. Like, I'm going to have to show you my strength. But he's like, I don't want to have to do that, right? Um, and, uh, and, and something that kind of occurred to me is many people in this world uh, mistake God's like grace and patience for weakness sometimes as well. 
but his restraint on this world shows absolute strength. The fact that God is restraining um, from just going ahead and, and ending all of this is actually a sign of absolute strength. And one day his strength is going to be displayed uh, in judgment on those who have yet to repent. But um, it's not a threat. Like that's not meant to be a threat. It's, it's more of a pleading to all people to turn to God while there is still time. And so that's kind of what he's saying in all of those scriptures right there. But Whenever he gets to verse five, like this right here, I think if there was going to be like a central verse that tied every, everything together in chapter 13, it's going to be verse five. And, uh, and we're actually going to talk about some pretty deep things as we kind of camp here on verse five and some pretty hard things. There's going to be some kind of hard realities in this, but I think it's going to be for our good. And I think it's going to be um, also, you know, just for, just for our benefit in everyday life. But here's what he says in, in verse five. So this is what he's telling them. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So this is what he tells the, the church at Corinth. He's like, I want you to examine yourselves to see whether you're even saved or not. He says, test yourselves. And then he says, or do you not realize that, uh, realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. He says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. That's a different, two different tests right there. And let me explain it. All right. So that, so remember the thing that they said about Paul, they were like, you're not really an apostle. Like you're, you're a fake apostle and this is what everybody's saying. And so we don't know if we want to believe you or not. The easiest way to prove whether or not Paul is a true apostle sent by Christ is to put Paul to a test. So he's saying, I want you to put me to a test. And the best way to put Paul to a test is by putting themselves to a test. And what is that test? A test to see if they are really in the faith to see if they're really in the faith, because if their faith is genuine, if they test themselves and their faith turns out to be genuine, which is signified by Jesus Christ in them, then the one who led them to that faith must also be genuine. So that's his thought behind it, okay? So Paul is basically saying, if you want to see for certain that I am a true apostle from Jesus, look inside yourself and see the proof in your salvation that came through the gospel that I preached. But I want to take just a moment and I want to park here for just a second on this idea of testing yourselves. Because I think that there's a thought that haunts a lot of people. And, uh, and it's something that haunted me whenever I was younger. But it was a thought of, am I really saved or not? Have you guys ever thought that before? Has that ever crept into your brain? You're like, am I truly saved? Like, am I really saved? Like, I think that's something that a lot of people think. And, and whenever I was in high school, Man, that thought just haunted me to the core because again, like I didn't really grow up in church, but I started to go to, go to church uh, like around mm, older middle school. And, uh, and, and so I was very, very, you know, I was, I was young, but yet I wasn't like super, super young. But there was a moment in my life whenever I started to really fear whether or not I was really saved. And, uh, and without knowing that I was testing myself, I, I began to test myself and I found that I did not pass the test. And that's how I knew that I really wasn't saved. That's how I knew that I really wasn't a Christian. Uh, and, and that's whenever I finally, once and for all, truly and fully like repented of my sin, put my faith in Christ and, and was indwelt with the Holy Spirit, like completely saved. But had I not noticed some things that were kind of incongruent with my life and what Christianity said that it was, 
then I would have just kept on going thinking that I was a Christian when I really wasn't. And that would have ended very poorly, right? Uh, because I would have just believed that what that guy told me whenever he was like, hey, you want to be a Christian? And I was like, yeah. He was like, you want to go to hell? I was like, absolutely not. Like, who does, right? And then, and then he was like, well, then just pray this prayer. I was like, well, let's do it, right? And so I, I prayed that prayer. And if, I would have, and if I continued to believe that that prayer saved me, then I would have been surprised at the end of my life. But I was very convinced in those moments that, because that's what the guy told me. He's like, all you got to do is pray this prayer and then you're good to go. And, and, I, and I thought it worked, but I would have been very surprised whenever I found out that it didn't work. Um, because I walked around thinking that I was saved. And I think that there are a lot of people, according to scripture, um, that are walking around doing the same thing. Like assuming that they're saved whenever they're not truly saved. And, and so I love this idea of testing yourself. And I want to show you perhaps, um, we're going to jump away from 2 Corinthians just for a second. And I want to show you guys something that's probably the most terrifying scripture in all the Bible. Um, at least for me. It's, it's, it's completely terrifying. And so I'm going to take you guys to it for just a second. But it'll be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 I want to show you guys something for just a second. Because Jesus is preaching a sermon from a mountain. They named it Sermon on the Mount. Great job, guys. Um, to a bunch of people who have started to follow him. All right? So picture Jesus on this mountain, and he's kind of shouting down from this mountain this sermon. And all of these people who are gathered around that, want to, that have started to follow him are listening to what he has to say. And, and listen to what Jesus' words are to these people. This is just part of it. It begins actually in chapter 5, and, and now we're in chapter 7 of Matthew. So he's been talking to them for a while, but here's what he says to them. Here's, and hopefully it'll be on the screen. Yeah. It says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. But Jesus says, And those who enter by it are many. So Jesus gives this picture, if you can picture it in your mind, of this large gate. He's like, I want you to picture this gate. And it's large because so many people are walking through this large gate via this path that is an easy path. And it's a gate that leads to destruction. And it's like, what is he talking about? That word destruction is the word we see many times in scripture whenever it's referencing a place called hell. And so Jesus is like, there is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. And he says the majority of people are on this very, very wide gate that is on this wide path that leads to this wide gate that's leading to destruction. And, and then he says this other gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And unfortunately, we're kind of confronted with like this sad reality that most people will choose the broad path. And will inevitably lead them to a broad gate into destruction. That's what Jesus wants them to understand. And there, it actually says there are few who will choose the path that leads to life, which the Bible tells us is Jesus. Few people in the world. And we can see by the pattern of our world how that indeed is very heartbreakingly happening today. And that's very true. And, I, and that's what, that, that should burden us. Like that should be something that breaks our heart and actually motivates us to go and to share the gospel, to share the truth um, of God. And so here's what I want you to do, because how does this tie in? I want you to picture like all the, 
all the Christians in your mind, all right? And I want you to picture this narrow gate that, they'll, that they're funneling through, all right? This gate that leads to life. And then I want you to picture all of the non-Christians and the wide gate they are funneling through to destruction, because that's the picture that Jesus is painting. But now, however wide that gate is, widen it. And however narrow that gate is, make it even more narrow because Jesus is about to do that very thing. Because listen, he's not only speaking about like atheists. He's not speaking about non-believers or people who have been misguided by other religions. Jesus is speaking about people who would call themselves Christians. That's who he's speaking to here, which is a very sobering thing. Because look in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Here's what he says to all these people who are following him. He wants them to know, and he wants to shock them with the fact that they actually might be on the broad path. Because this is what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're talking about people, he's talking about people who actually call him Lord. Like who would, if you were to talk to them and be like, you were a Christian, they'd be like, I'm a Christian, right? Is Jesus your Lord? He's my Lord. Like he's talking about those people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, Jesus, really? He says, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And then he says, on that day, that day, whenever we stand, whenever you make it through that gate, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Like Jesus just said, the gate is broad even among those who call him Lord. That is a very sobering, very sobering thing. So those who think they are saved, it's this picture of people who believe themselves to be in the faith on the narrow path, like they're convinced of it. It's convinced that they have a true, genuine faith, even worked for God, yet are denied access through the narrow gate because they never had a true, genuine faith. And they never had their sins atoned for and will now have to atone for them themselves in what the Bible calls destruction right here. So, and here's what's interesting. Do you know why they were convinced? Why they were convinced that they were okay and why they were so shocked that they weren't. Because of the verses in between those two verses there. In 15 through 20, it talks about false teachers who led them there and convinced them that they were okay. And so that's why they were walking around going, we're fine. Because the preacher told me so. We're fine because the person who I decided that I wanted to follow told me that my eternity was going to be secure. So what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians and what Jesus is saying in Matthew is don't just trust what someone told you, all right? Because whenever I was doubting my salvation, somebody told me, don't worry about that. Like, was there a time in your life whenever you prayed? And I was like, yeah. And then they were like, all right, well, then don't let the devil bother you. And I was like, I said, you know, that really doesn't make sense because why, why would the devil try to convince me I'm not saved? Wouldn't he want me to just continue believing that I am? right? Like, it doesn't make any sense that he would try to convince me that I'm not, right? And so don't just trust what somebody told you, but rather test yourself with the scriptures to see if you are truly in the faith. 
So what does the Bible say a true born again child of God who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit look like? What does that person look like? Because if you have the Holy Spirit in you, which is a sign of genuine salvation, you will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's just something that's going to happen. But only you can look inside of yourself and ask yourself the question, right? Is this me? Does this describe me? So I'm going to give you guys just a few things you can ask yourself to kind of get started. Because I had a lady one time come up to me um, and, uh, and she was like, and actually I've been asked this on several occasions. Like people want to come up to me and they will, they will be like, how do I know? if I'm truly a Christian? Like, how do I know if I'm truly saved? How do I know that, that if I died today, that I would actually be in heaven? Like, how do I know that I'm a true follower of God? And I cannot answer that question for anybody. Like, that's something that they're going to have to answer for themselves. But I gave her kind of these things um, to kind of get her started. And so if you've ever wondered that, or if you know somebody who's wondering about that, here's kind of something to get you started to take a test, to examine yourself in light of scripture. Number one is, do you have a love for God? So that's the first thing you need to ask yourself. Like, do you have a love for God? And not just like a confession of love. Like I'm not, because if I ask that question in here, do you love God? People are going to be like, yeah. Like those people that said, Lord, Lord, and Jesus was like, depart from me. I don't know you. Like if you were to ask them, do you love God? They would have said, yeah. So I'm not talking about just a confession of love, but a true love that is shown through action, all right? Like, what do your actions show? Do your actions show that you love God? And that action is actually our second one, because that action is, number two, do you have a lifestyle of obedience? Like, is your lifestyle defined by obedience to God? Or is your lifestyle more defined by obedience to yourself? Because whenever I wasn't truly saved, and whenever I really um, thought that I was, Whenever I boiled things down and I look back at my life, I was living a lifestyle. Because remember, I went to church. Like, it looked like everything was good on the outside. Like, I was hanging out with church people, like all of this stuff. But when I, all, when I boiled it all down, like, I was living a lifestyle of obedience to myself. And I was not living a lifestyle of obedience to God. I was doing the things that I wanted to do. He wasn't really the Lord of my life. I was the Lord of my life. And actually my life was defined more by disobedience uh, than obedience. And so there's a difference between like occasional obedience and a lifestyle of obedience that's motivated by a love for God. And that's what we're talking about here. Not saying you're perfect, all right? But that your greatest desire, do you desire at your very core to be obedient to God? Is that something that you, that you strive to be, right? Uh, and then number three, you can ask yourself, do you have a passion for the lost? Do you have a passion for the lost? Do you, do you desperately want to see people that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus? That's something that for me, again, was something that I completely lacked uh, whenever I thought that I was saved and I was calling Jesus Lord. Um, but I did not have, like, I did not have a burden at all um, for the lost. I didn't have a passion at all for the lost. Um, and, and I remember somebody saying one time, like, something about a burden for the lost. And I was like, I don't even know what, that, what you're talking about. Like, that's their life. Whatever their life is their life. I've got my life, right? But whenever I finally gave my life to Christ and I finally was truly saved, um, I understood what it, mean, what it meant to have, like, a burden for the lost. Like, that's something that, that now really honestly motivates everything that I do is this, is this burden that I have for people to come to know Christ in a true saving faith. Um, 
So do you have a passion for the lost? And number four, you can ask yourself, do you have a passion and a longing for holiness? Do you have a passion and a longing for holiness? And, and alongside of a passion and a longing for holiness comes a hatred of sin. That should also be something that comes into your life again. Again, that, that was another big sign uh, for me that I wasn't truly saved uh, because I look back at my life and there was no pursuit of holiness. There was no, I want to be more like Jesus. There was just, I want to just do the things that I want to do. And if it ended up being something that God didn't agree with, it really didn't make much of a difference to me at all. Um, and, and that kind of leads us to, to number five, uh, which is the last one. And again, these, this isn't exhaustive. This is just getting you started, but they're really good. Um, number five, are you repentant when you sin, right? Because we're not perfect, but whenever you do sin, is there something inside of you that goes, man, I hate that. Like, I hate that I just messed up. Why do I keep messing up? Does it eat you up inside? Like, is there an internal battle, right? Uh, a person who says, I don't struggle with sin is a person that's on the broad path because struggling is something that we should all have in us because it's something, and, and, and we should, yes, be defeating things in our lives, but we should be struggling with it. If there's no struggle, then that's a bad sign, all right? Um, so if your answer uh, is no to any of those five things, then that should be a cause for concern. And that's between you and the Lord. But what I hope he does with that is if that's anybody in the room, I hope, what he, I hope he does for you the same thing that he did for me. Because whenever I sat there and I truly thought about all these things and whenever I truly looked at all of these things and the answer was no, that actually led me to the Lord. And that is what's called examining yourselves through scripture. The scriptures led me to the Lord. And, and notice that none of the questions were, did you pray a prayer asking Jesus to come into your heart? That's not a question that you should ask yourself, all right? Because, it, because you can do that, but it also might not work because it didn't for me. Um, I'm not saying you can't be saved like that, but I'm just saying I prayed prayer, I prayed that and uh, asked Jesus to come to my heart and it didn't work um, because my heart was not behind it. But uh, as David says in Psalm 51, what God desires more than anything is a broken and contrite heart. And that's what was lacking whenever I prayed that prayer, whenever I was like in seventh grade. Because he, again, the prayer that he led me in, he was like, you want, if you don't want to go to hell, say these words. And I was like, yes, sir. You know, and so uh, he's like, dear Jesus. And I'm like, dear Jesus, like making sure I get everything exactly right. Like, right, like I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm like, I admit that I'm a sinner. Like, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying words. Was my heart broken? at all? No. Was it contrite at all? Like, did I have any kind of repentant or remorseful feeling in my heart at all? No. I was just like, these words are magical. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it there. So, uh, but that's unfortunately, man, that just led me in a completely wrong direction. Um, and if you need a more in-depth test, or if you know someone that needs a more in-depth test, this is what I would recommend, is I would recommend going to the book of 1 John, all right? And I would recommend grabbing a piece of paper and then on one side, like put a line down the middle and on one side, write in the title, evidence of a true child of God. And then on the other side, write evidence of the opposite. And as you read 1 John, write under each column exactly what you find. 
Like this is what First John says is the sign of a true believer, like a sign of a, a true child of God. And then this is what somebody who doesn't belong to him looks like. And then what you do is at the end of that list, you go, which one defines me the best? And that is a good way to examine yourself and to test yourself in scripture, all right? Listen, doubting your salvation, right? It's a healthy thing. It's okay to doubt your salvation um, because it leads to testing yourself. And as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, it will lead you to a true salvation or build your confidence more and more that you truly are saved. Because I love having the confidence that I truly am saved. Like I, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church. Like I've been in ministry for like 20 something years. Yet on occasion, I will still have that fleeting thought inside of me of, oh, like that panic for a moment of like, am I saved? <laughs> right? Like just that, just that fleeting thought. But, but now, like back then it used to be something that plagued me, but I've examined myself in scripture so much that whenever I have that thought, it's more of, it's, it's, it's almost just more like, like I lost my keys, right? You're like, did I lose my keys? Oh, okay, there's my keys, right? Like now I'm like, do I have my salvation? And then I think about it for a second. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm good right? So I don't, I don't really, it doesn't, it doesn't stick around. And I'm so glad that God gives us the scriptures so that we can compare ourselves to it, to, to have that confidence. Because again, in First John, uh, towards the end, in chapter five, I believe, he says, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's something that he gives us, that confidence that he gives us, that we can know that we have it. All right. Love God for that. Um, all right. So, Test yourselves, examine yourselves. Uh, verse seven through 10, here's what he says. He says, but we pray uh, to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right through, uh, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. It's very wordy. Um, and, uh, and it, it really takes some dissecting to figure out what Paul is saying here. Um, but I did the work so that you don't have to, but absolutely test me on this. Um, but here's things that I see that we can draw from this, what he just says right here. All right. Paul is saying like in the end, what counts he's saying is not what you think of me. Like that's not what counts. It only matters that you are truly following the Lord. He's like, that's the only thing I care about. Like, I really don't care in the end what you really think about. The only thing, like, about me, like, what I really care about is, is you. What I really care about is if you're truly following the Lord. That's the only thing that matters. He says, like, even if you, even if you fail the test, and then you're convinced that I'm the reason you failed the test. He's like, all I care about is that you come to know Christ. Not that, I don't, if you call me a false teacher at the end, that's fine, as long as you come to know Jesus. That's all I really care about. Um, and he's like, and, and if you're restored when I come, uh, you know, if you're strong, then we don't have to show our strength by using our authority in a severe way. Um, and here's something that, that was a, a, a good reminder for me, and hopefully this is a good reminder for you guys as well. But sometimes we have to be willing to have the appearance of weakness and again, we don't like looking weak, but sometimes we have to be willing to have the appearance of weakness if it means strengthening others in their walks with the Lord. We have to be willing 
to appear weak. Now, how do we apply that in, in real life, right? Because that's a broad statement. I know this is hard for us because we do, like, we do care about ourselves, but we have to care more about souls than about being right, all right? We have to care more about souls than being right. We have to check our ego at the door when it comes to some of these things. When you argue with someone about spiritual things, okay, whenever you get into maybe some sort of like biblical argument or something, or, you know, whatever, like whatever the argument is, here's a question you need to ask yourself. Are you more concerned with winning the argument or are you more concerned with the spiritual condition of the person you're arguing with? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because if we care more about ourselves, then we'll defend ourselves until that other person is belittled. But is that truly loving someone else? No, who's that really loving? Yourself, right? That's truly loving yourself. And so we have to be willing to lose the argument if it means winning someone's soul, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, and we should not be concerned with obviously winning the argument because do you really want, is that really what you want is for someone to, to walk away belittled? And, and I don't think that's anything we want, but loving someone as Christ loved is being willing to take a hit to your ego. Uh, because again, I want to remind us there was no greater humiliation than the cross. Yet Christ was willing to be humiliated to save those who were humiliating him. Man, that's a heart that we should have for people. And the second thing that we can draw from this, what, what he just said in those scriptures, is the understanding that Paul has that his authority was not given to him to oppress, but rather to build up. Did you catch that at the end right there? He's like, you know, um, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. What's that authority for? For building up and not for tearing down. So, so many people in authority, have you guys, you've probably seen this, but so many people in authority use that authority to oppress people rather than to build people up. And that's a, that's a very sad thing uh, that we have to watch. But, um, but so many people use that authority to lord it over others. And, uh, and this is a misuse of God's given you know, authority. Like, I need, I need to hear this because few things can turn humility to pride quicker than authority. Like, if you want to turn humility into pride real quick, put someone in charge of something. Right? I mean, don't we get that? We get like on this power trip a little bit. And we're like, oh, I'm the one in charge now, right? You got to listen to what I'm doing. But according to scripture, God has placed people in authority for the purpose of building up, not for tearing down. So according to scripture, like God has placed the responsibility of the spiritual health of my family on me. Like of, of all of us, like men, by placing us in authority in our homes. Like God has placed that on us and we can use that to belittle or we can use that to build up. I think that's something that we need to hear. Parents, the authority given to you by God over your children you have the ability to crush their spirits or you can build them up with your authority. But the Lord has given you that authority for building up and not tearing down. As a pastor, God has given me authority so that you can be built up as a church and not torn down. Like that's why um, 
have you guys ever have you guys ever seen like churches that uh, the person up front is just like yelling at people and and like just belittling everyone and everybody walks away just completely torn down? Like that's not why God put someone in authority. Like that's not why God put a pastor in authority. That should not be a way. And I'm not saying that maybe a harsh thing every once in a while needs to be said, but it should be for the building up of people. It should be said in love. It should be said, you know, in a way that is building people up, not tearing people down. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is are like with the authority that we begin at, and every one of us has some sort of authority, whatever that is. Are you using it to build people up or tear people down? Um, but notice, if Paul showed up in Corinth and had to deal severely with them, it was still for their building up, right? It was still for their building up um, and, uh, and for the purpose of building them up. And so, again, you know, for more explanation on that, you can check out that sermon on 1 Corinthians 5. Um, and then we have Paul's final words. So here we go at the end. And he basically sums up with like all the things that we've heard him talk about throughout First and Second Corinthians. So here's what he said. Here's, here's where it all ends. He says, finally, brothers. And I love that he says brothers because he has such a great affection for them. Even, even though he's got to come to them in this way with kind of this harsh tone in, this, at the, in these final chapters, he still calls them brothers. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. What does he want them to rejoice in? Their salvation. And then he says, aim for restoration. Restoration how? Restoration in the relationship with God, aim for restoration in their relationship with each other, and also with Paul. And then he says, comfort one another, which just means don't oppose one another. Like there's enough opposition in the world. You don't need opposition in the church. So he says, comfort one another instead. Agree with one another. Come to an agreement. Don't allow the enemy to, to divide you. We talked about division all throughout 1 Corinthians. Then he says, live in peace. And he says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He'll be guiding you. He'll be leading you. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's just a cultural sign of goodwill. Don't take any ideas from that and be weird, okay? Um, like, I think if it was today, it'd be like, shake a hand very nicely. All right. Like, uh, I mean, I know it still exists in other cultures and things like that, but, uh, and it, and it always kind of freaks me out whenever I meet somebody and then, uh, they're from another country and then they actually come in for the kiss, like on the cheek and the cheek, you know, and you're just like, no, oh, I don't know what to, what to do right now. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, it still exists, but, uh, you know, um, Bryce, if you're going to greet me, just shake my hand. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, and then he says, all the saints greet you. He basically means everybody says hi. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love that because he gives that nod to the Trinity right there. Um, and so that's it. Like, that's it. That's the, that's the final words that he has for them. And that ends our look into the church in Corinth. Um, and again, like, it's been fun, like, getting to know these guys. Uh, as we've spent so many weeks um, in 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians, and I don't know about you, but I've become pretty invested in their lives. Um, there have been ups and downs. There have been heartbreaks. And, uh, and, and here's something that's very interesting, because I went, I went in research of, like, what happened, right, to the church. Uh, I don't know why. It's like, you know, at the end of a movie or at the end of a series, you're not, you can't just be done with it. You have to, like, go Google it. Like, who were all the people? How did it all happen? Like, who was the writer? Like, you know, so I just felt like I need to go look up some more things um, to kind of like what, what happened. And we don't know a lot 
that happened after this letter. But we do know of a writer uh, named Clement of Rome uh, who was alive during the time of the apostles near the end of their lives. And, uh, and historical writings of his tell us uh, that he possibly even studied under them. Uh, so we know for certain of one letter he wrote, which is referred to as First Clement or the First Epistle of Clement. Um, and it was a letter written to the church in Corinth. Like this guy wrote a letter to the church in Corinth because there was an internal dispute going on regards, in regards to the leadership going on. So like while we finish First or Second Corinthians and we're like, that did it, right? Like hopefully like that's what happened and everything was good and all of that. Like, like every church, there's going to be problems. And, uh, and so even towards the end of that, even after, you know, if Paul made it to them, um, even after that, they were still having some problems and he wrote to them. Uh, and and he, listen to the advice that he kind of gave them. Um, there was like this, you know, again, internal dispute going on in regards to leadership. And in the, le in the letter, Clement urges them to look to Jesus and the apostles as examples. That's what he told them. And, uh, and so that's pretty cool, but that's really all we have. Uh, Corinth still very much exists today in Greece. Um, it's kind of cool. I would love to go there someday. Uh, church trip? Sound good? All right, let's go. Let's go to Greece. I don't know how much that would be. It sounds expensive. But, uh, but here's the thing that's true about Corinth right now is that if you look at the church in Corinth, um, it's, it's mainly a Greek Orthodox church now. Uh, and there really doesn't exist a church that is like, um, you know, orthodox, like biblical orthodoxy Christianity uh, anymore. And in fact, if there is any of that that exists, which there are a few, uh, it's heavily oppressed uh, right now in Corinth. And so it's, you get so invested, um, but here's something cool. The, the true church does still exist in Corinth though. And that's pretty neat. Like it would be really awesome to like, be a part of that church or to go meet someone, you know, that was a part of that church. Um, it would be really, really cool. But, uh, you know, even though the Corinthian church is, is no longer what it once was, these writings still continue to serve their purpose, though, for us and even in the church today. And God always had a bigger plan for these letters because um, he knew that, that even though Christianity would diminish in Corinth, it would still very much be flourishing 2,000 years later. Uh, and the principles that were taught to the church in Corinth are very much applicable to our church today and, uh, and centuries, millennium later, um, still applicable. So there is still division to be dealt with, as you guys know in church. Uh, there are still immoralities that must be addressed. We still need to hear that we are to consider one another before we consider ourselves. We need reminders about the gifts of singleness, marriage, uh, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and have even the importance of the resurrection. And we need instruction on how not to waste our affliction, the importance of forgiveness and godly character. We need to be reminded not to lose heart and to always be of good courage because we have been tasked with the privilege of being ministers of reconciliation. We need help to see that our very lives are living letters to the lost from God himself. We need a reminder of the motivation behind and of the importance of giving and taking care of one another. And in these last chapters, we've been reminded that there's always still work to do, and it's best done in our weaknesses. 
And finally, today we're reminded to test ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith, to check our ego at the door when it comes to truly loving others with the gospel, and to use the authority God has given us to build others up rather than tear them down. There is so much that has happened in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So many good things, and it has been an absolute joy uh, to be able to go through both of those books. And if you've ever missed any of it, uh, you can always go back and listen to those again. Um, but it's been an amazing journey. And so let's remember, and this is cool, let's keep praying for the church in Corinth. Because we can. Because they're still there. But also, let's keep praying for uh, the church globally. Because the task that was given to the church in Corinth is still the task that is given to us today. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.